Between the Liner Notes is sponsored by Bedphones. I listen to a lot of music, and one of my favorite times to listen is when I'm lying in bed trying to fall asleep. Until now, every pair of headphones I've owned was too uncomfortable for bed. If you lie on your side or stomach, sleeping with headphones on is nearly impossible. But Bedphones has changed the game. Its engineers designed a headphone that is so thin it practically disappears between your ears and the pillow. Now I can listen to some relaxing music or my favorite podcasts and fall asleep comfortably with my Bedphones on. Please visit Bedphones.com and use promo code BTLN10, as in the numbers 1-0, to receive $10 off your new pair of Bedphones. I've always felt that I'm an outsider in Washington. I've lived here for 30 years, but I grew up in Denver. And I've had a recurring feeling as I've lived here. I would see something that had historical significance in Washington that people walk right by, that I have this feeling that this would be a really big deal if it was in Denver. And when I first read about this opera company, I remember thinking that Colorado would have this as a core part of the historical curriculum if it had been part of Colorado's history. But that the fact that I had worked in the arts, had contacts to educational people and historical people, and that this was not well known, I was wondering if this really was one of those phenomenon that all of these people had walked right by it. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. This show is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For this episode, I'm handing off the microphone to our skilled producer, Tim Townsend. In 2003, Shelley Brown, at the time the artistic director of the Strathmore Theater in Bethesda, Maryland, was researching local music history when she found a single reference to the Colored American Opera Company. The mention, without description or much context, was a bit bewildering. I found it very surprising that there was something this early that was African American, that was happening nationally. It didn't fit with my notion of history. I had lived in Washington for a long time. I had worked for the Kennedy Center for 10 years. I considered myself a local music expert. Over the next several years, whenever she had time, Brown pulled at a research thread that led her to various institutions around Washington, D.C., the Library of Congress, Howard University, the Martin Luther King Jr. Library, the Washington Historical Society. At each stop, Brown gathered another piece of information that helped her begin to paint a picture of a lost American story. I mean, there are reviews from all of these performances. I mean, there's biographies of these real people. I felt like there's much more out there. Well, the scores were out there. The music was sitting there. All of these things were just kept and cared for, obscured. It was in the archives of the United States Marine Band, the oldest military band in the country, established in 1798, that Brown found the clue that broke her history investigation wide open. 
the Colored American Opera Company, she found, was born at a Catholic church called St. Augustine's, the first black Catholic congregation in the nation's capital. That was the place that I really found individual names and when I really thought, there are real people. Henry Warren, the violinist who bought himself out of slavery. I could go to the church, I could sit in the church. I knew there were descendants who had been part of these families in this Washington area for all of these generations. At the Marine Band Archives, Brown also discovered that a local music scholar named Patrick Warfield, an expert on the great American march composer and conductor of the U.S. Marine Band, John Philip Sousa, had been researching St. Augustine's association with a man named John Esputa. The Sousa family and the Esputa family had connections to the Marine Band, and both lived in Washington's Navy Yard neighborhood. The Navy Yard was one of the biggest employers in mid-19th century Washington. European immigrants and African-American laborers worked together in the neighborhood as sailors, carpenters, bricklayers, wheelwrights, blacksmiths, and, because of the Marine Band, musicians. A whole bunch of them. Souza wrote an autobiography called Marching Along, and in that autobiography he mentions studying with an old Spanish gentleman who turned out to be a guy named Francis Esputa. That's Patrick Warfield, now a professor of musicology at the University of Maryland. Francis Esputa, who had come to the U.S. from Spain, supplemented his Marine Band salary by teaching music in his home. His neighbor and co-worker in the Marine Band, Antonio Sousa, eventually sent his own son, John Philip, to the Esputa house for lessons. In 1861, Sousa began taking lessons in solfege, a note-singing system you know from The Sound of Music, with Francis Esputa. Over the next decade, Sousa would study violin, music theory, and a variety of wind instruments in the Esputa house. Sousa would go on to write 135 marches, and between 1892 and 1932, the Sousa band went on nearly 80 tours, performed 6,000 different pieces at more than 15,000 concerts. But it was the Esputas who booked Sousa his first gig when he was 11 years old at the St. Elizabeth Asylum for the Insane. Francis's son, John Esputa, eventually took over as Sousa's music teacher. Sousa actually doesn't have very positive things to say about John Esputa. He sort of suggests that he was a very harsh teacher, was basically mean about his performance. Esputa called Sousa's first musical effort, quote, nothing but cheese and bread and bread and cheese. Sousa complained that John Esputa was a harsh disciplinarian who was especially strict with male students. Before he became Sousa's teacher, John Esputa had been, starting at age 12, an apprentice fifer with the Marine Band before becoming a full member at age 21. But playing for the prestigious Marine Band didn't set up band members financially. The compensation provided to members of the Marine Band was determined based on the assumption they had other jobs as well. So at that time, there was no thought that you were paying the Marine Band musicians a living wage. You were paying them some money. And so all of them pieced together other jobs. And when you can find musical programs from 19th century Washington, there aren't very many, but when you can find them, they almost always have members of the Marine Band listed in the program, whether that's at a church, you know, for a church choir, a theater orchestra, 
a part-time orchestra in the city, uh, the orchestra that's playing along with an opera. Warfield has written that Marine band musicians at the time were, quote, Washington's front line of music makers. Esputa was no different, and many of his side gigs were with church choirs. He came to St. Augustine's at the invitation of its pastor, an Italian missionary, in 1868. There was a really important priest, Father Barodi, who was a beloved and benevolent leader of the congregation, and he funded this music teacher. I mean, he had a congregation. There were people who were musicians themselves. It built them a whole new church. It launched them into the next chapter of their life as a church community. The congregation that would become St. Augustine's was formed a decade before Esputa's arrival by a group of free black Catholics. About four years after St. Augustine's founding, Washington's 3,000 black slaves were emancipated. You had Washington as a destination for freedmen and families. Emancipation came a year before the rest of the country in the District of Columbia. We had a little bit of a head start here where there was a trial of that to see. Lincoln really was trying to see what was going to happen using the District of Columbia as a bit of an experiment. Soon afterward, the city lifted other restrictions on African Americans. It opened schools for black children and abolished segregated seating on streetcars. In 1862, Lincoln gave oyster supplier and St. Augustine member George Coakley permission to have the church's 4th of July picnic and school fundraiser on the lawn next to the White House, according to the Washington Post. But the Civil War had stressed Washington's infrastructure, and at war's end, 40,000 freed slaves made their way into a city that was unprepared for the influx. Despite the city's post-war disarray, that flow of humanity may have ensured that by the time Esputa arrived, St. Augustine's pews were filled with talented musicians. Washington, D.C., post-Civil War, right? There's lots of efforts to create institutions that can help newly liberated African Americans. Some of them had been enslaved, some of them hadn't been. Slavery is abolished in Washington in 1862, so lots of new African Americans come into the city, which means you've got longtime residents and you've got new residents, and you need institutions basically to create communities for people. Esputa realized he was working with talented singers at St. Augustine's, and the choir began performing great European pieces. In 1873, after a performance of Haydn's Mass No. 2 on Easter Sunday and a fall performance of Mozart's Seventh Mass, the Catholic Mirror said St. Augustine's choir was, quote, justly considered one of the best in the city. In the 19th century, they were singing Mozart and Haydn and American Dante. They were doing big Catholic Masses. And that makes sense. If you're this group of people who's been marginalized and ostracized from society and you're trying to build these institutions that... And, and the only word I can come up with really is, it's, it's patronizing, this sort of elevate idea, right? There's a desire, sort of Booker T. Washington desire to elevate African Americans within the structures of white culture. It makes sense that your music is going to be that sort of European classical music, as opposed to something you might have brought with you. These were largely congregants who were looking to establish themselves as legitimate members of the dominant society. I expect that they were intentional about that. That was actually what they wanted to do. They weren't trying to celebrate 
a culture from the plantation or the, the South. They're from Africa. They were trying to prove themselves equal to everybody around them who was white. The St. Augustine congregation, along with Asputa, began to realize that the church choir could be a fundraising engine. He was teaching a whole congregation of traditional artists how to read music, how to perform very complex pieces of classical music. And in so doing, he created a capital campaign for an opera company. I don't think that John Asputa is some great civil rights justice figure. I think John Asputa is thinking, okay, I need to piece together a career as a freelance musician. How am I going to do that? Well, I had some money from the Marine Band for a while. I'm going to teach some private students out of my home. I'm going to conduct the orchestras or lead the choirs at some churches. I'm going to work in some theaters. And he's looking at this Catholic church that's sort of just getting started, that needs some money. And what is a way of getting them publicity and getting them potentially some cash in their coffers? Well, let's use that choir. White folk are going to be interested to come in and hear African-Americans sing Mozart. That was a kind of novel thing. And sure enough, you start seeing these reports of how senators are going down to St. Augustine's to hear the choir. And pretty soon you get reports about, oh, then the church bought a new altarpiece based on the ticket sales for this benefit they did. Again, I don't want to make it sound like he's some sort of money-grubbing person, but it's a, a practical concern for him. Hoping to raise money for a school and a new church building, the choir and Asputa formed the Colored American Opera Company, made up mostly of singers from St. Augustine's, around 1872. The new company began learning a new repertoire, going from choral arrangements to opera. But it wasn't as big a jump as you might think. So Mozart, which the choir had performed, was also a well-known opera composer, Mercandante who the choir performed, also a well-known opera composer. So in fact, masses of that time, European masses of that time, they weren't operas, but they weren't musically that different from operas. They were more formal, more conservative, but often had sort of arias and choruses the way you would expect an opera to have. And so the jump musically isn't going to be huge. The Colored American Opera Company's first, and as it turned out only, production was Julius Eichberg's The Doctor of Alcantara, a popular American operetta at the time about frustrated young lovers. Eichberg, a German native, wrote Alcantara in a style that would recall later works by Gilbert and Sullivan. The first performance was a public dress rehearsal at the church in January 1873. A month after dress rehearsals, the Colored American Opera Company gave two performances of the Doctor of Alcantara at Lincoln Hall for 1,500 people, about a third of whom were white. The Washington Star said the audience included, quote, nearly all the leading colored people of the district and many of our prominent white citizens. Demand for the troupe came from outside Washington. At the end of February, the Colored American Opera Company performed Eichberg's operetta twice at Philadelphia's Horticultural Hall, in May, by popular acclaim, the company gave two more performances in Washington, this time at the larger Walls Opera House. Everyone is incredibly excited, right? It's this idea that you're going to go here, and it would be Negroes or colored people, performing all this serious music, doing a full-fledged opera. 
some of the white newspapers are kind of surprised that they're able to do it. And then when you go look at the black newspapers, there's this incredible level of sort of pride in doing it. They talk about, you know, this is a long time coming. The the boot has been at our, our neck for so long. And now that we're liberated, we're able to do these great works of art. Despite the obvious talent of the black singers, the press gave much of the acclaim to the company's white organizers, Esputa and his manager, Harry Donahue. Professor Esputa and Mr. T. Harry Donahue, to whom belong the credit of this unique organization, are thorough and energetic gentlemen, as shown by the perfection of this troupe, and the colored people owe them a debt of gratitude for so successfully demonstrating the musical abilities of the race. The Washington Star. In almost every case, Esputa is talked about as the the leader of the program and as an ambassador to the black community, uh, as someone who helps pull them into this artistic triumph. There's one list of all the singers, but by and large, they're not talking about the performers individually. They're talking about Esputa as a benefactor of the African-American community. At the same time, cultured Washington, black and white, did see the Alcantara performances as reason for celebration. Decades of racism, discrimination, and suffering lay ahead, but the Civil War was in the past and slavery gone. This moment in American history was one of hope. Some in the press believed that hope could be found in the idea of black and white Americans coming together in a room to hear former slaves sing music rooted in the culture of their oppressors. Before the curtain rolled up on the serenade scene, one could not help recalling the dark and bloody pictures of chains and slavery, of ignorance and degradation that once surrounded these colored people. Emancipation not only gave liberty to the African race, but it gave the world colored poets and painters, orators and senators, judicial magistrates and men of solence, sculptors and musicians, and as one of the first fruits of liberty, a regularly organized opera company at the national capital. This is a long, long step in advance of the condition of the race a few short years ago, and it reveals possibilities for them that are indeed gratifying to all their well-wishers. The Daily National Republican. Or maybe not. The Colored American Opera Company essentially dissolved after meeting its fundraising goals. Is it possible that Asputa and the St. Augustine's Choir were simply genius marketers, playing on white guilt among the city's Republican well-to-do? After their first public dress rehearsal in preparation for a second, more ambitious performance, the church had distributed a circular to Washington's white elite. We hope to be able to demonstrate that our race will in time be capable of taking rank musically with our white brothers and sisters, and intend, should we meet with success here, to make a professional tour of the northern cities. We appeal to you, who have always expressed so much friendship for our race and our struggles for political and mental elevation, to aid us in our endeavors now. Stimulate us by your presence. Witness our performance of the opera and see if we are not worthy of encouragement. Read one way, that could be a sincere plea for cultural and racial uplift to an equal plane. Read another, it could be a perfectly calibrated message from a savvy congregation in need of a new building to a city full of white people yearning to do more for their black neighbors. Whichever it was, the Colored American Opera Company achieved what it set out to do. 
St. Augustine historians have said the handful of Alcantara performances brought in $75,000, the equivalent of $1.5 million today. Esputa commissioned his old star pupil, John Philip Sousa, to write a piece for the dedication ceremony of St. Augustine's new church building. We'll have more about St. Augustine's musical legacy right after the break. Between the Liner Notes is sponsored by Bedphones. When Bedphones design their headphones, they recognize that everyone's ear is shaped differently. That's why Bedphones attach to your ear with a gentle rubber-coated memory wire that is infinitely adjustable for a custom fit. Not only does the memory wire keep the headphones in place while you sleep, but you can work out in them as well without them constantly falling off your ear. Bedphones. Infinitely adjustable, infinitely comfortable. Please visit bedphones.com and use promo code BTLN10, as in the numbers 1-0, to receive $10 off your new pair of bedphones. Between the Liner Notes is also sponsored by Pippa. If you have a podcast of your own, Pippa is a super simple way to host and share it with the world. They have detailed analytics. They make it easy to switch from whatever host you're using now. And best of all, it's free. Full disclosure, Between the Liner Notes is currently hosted by Pippa. Please visit pippa.io to join. That's P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. Great American musical names continued to be associated with St. Augustine's. There was a guy, um, Grant, who was in Asputus Choir and Opera Company, African-American. There was also Duke Ellington mentions having studied with a guy named Grant. But it's likely that there's a further connection to later Washington musical life. Which I should say makes sense, right? Here's a pool of musicians at the church. And if you're looking for, a, you know, if you're a black musician like Duke Ellington looking for a teacher, you're living in a neighborhood not that far from the church, it makes sense you might run into the same people. So here you have seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, I guess, but a connection between John Philip Sousa and Duke Ellington, which we shouldn't really be surprised by. They're the same city. They're not of the same generation, but they're not that far apart. They're going to overlap. We shouldn't be surprised that they knew some of the same people. Even if Ellington did know some members of the Colored American Opera Company, he never had the opportunity to see the troupe perform. By the late 1870s, the press was no longer talking about the Colored American Opera Company. Esputa moved to Florida. He died in 1882, and soon afterward, the story of his work with St. Augustine's and its opera company faded, until about 120 years later, when Patrick Warfield and Shelley Brown began pulling historical threads. Well, this project I knew was bringing into focus history that had been obscured. Warfield helped Brown fill holes in the story she was piecing together, and Brown began thinking about how to produce a show that would honor the musicians of the Colored American Opera Company. It was their talent and their irrepressible desire to grow this community that was the story. The remarkable fact was what they were able to accomplish in the context of their time and their place. In 2008, Brown staged Free to Sing at the Strathmore in Bethesda. The show, which you can hear in the background and which sold out months in advance, brought songs from the Doctor of Alcantara to the public for the first time in a century. 
Members of St. Augustine's were in the audience for what the Washington Post called, quote, a wonderful historical document, and, quote, a fitting echo and tribute of its predecessor. But for Brown, the story she uncovered was less about opera than it was about an enterprising parish getting by in the wake of war and slavery. Like, we are all just humans in search of community and trying to make whatever our notion of our congregation is a little better off. And as you look at it, you know, the music was the vehicle. The music was the engine that helped this group of people bury people who were dying and educate the children who needed a place to go to school and allowed them to take care of the people who were poor among them. That's not who they all were, but it allowed them a way to create their community. So more than this group of people was unlike anybody else, it makes me feel like this group of people was so much like we are. Between the Liner Notes is produced by me, Matthew Billy. This episode was produced by Tim Townsend. Tim and I edited the episode. Georgina Gustin, Lindsay Schindler, and Justin Michaud read the archival news articles. Thanks to Shelley Brown and Patrick Warfield for being our guests. Pat's 2009 paper for the 19th Century Music Review, titled John Espuda, John Philip Sousa, and the Boundaries of a Musical Career, was a huge help in telling this story. In 2016, the University of Illinois Press published Pat's book, Making the March King, John Philip Sousa's Washington Years. Shelley and her husband Mike Rosenberg wrote Free to Sing. You can find more of Shelley's work at sbrownarts.com. A big thanks to the Strathmore for allowing us to use a recording of Free to Sing for this show. You can find out more about the theater by visiting strathmore.org. Also, thanks to Bedphones and Pippa for sponsoring this episode. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For more information about the show, please visit BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll have another great story about music for you on the next Between the Liner Notes. Between the Liner Notes.